In October of 2020, I was going on a walk through the south side of town. And as I passed a house on the south side, I noticed a small structure in their driveway. It looks sort of like a tiny version of those outdoor dining structures that many restaurants built that year. Maybe six feet wide, six feet long, and about 10 feet high. I could see bright lights shining from inside. I was really curious as to what it was. Was someone so tired of being quarantined with their family that they built a new house in the driveway? I pointed it out to a friend of mine that I was walking with, and she told me that it was a booth, and that we were in the middle of Sukkot, the Jewish festival of booths, or the festival of tabernacles. As we continued to walk through the neighborhood, I saw a few more of these. They were all different, some taller, some wider, some more ornate, some were simpler. It really helped me to imagine what the tabernacle, that mobile temple that the Israelites built and carried through the wilderness, might have looked like. Some Jewish traditions today have worshipers celebrate Sukkot by joining in a procession around the sanctuary of their synagogue or their temple with palm branches, but also myrtle branches and willow branches and citron branches. And they're reciting special supplications called Hosha Anat, which comes from the refrain Hosha Na, Hosanna, save us. They go around the sanctuary once on days one through six of Sukkot and they go around seven times on day seven. When I learned this, I was reminded of the first Sunday of Lent at St. Philip's Church in Harlem, a church I was at for a couple of years. On the first Sunday of Lent, we process around the sanctuary reciting the Great Litany, which is also a series of supplications interspersed with a common refrain. I wonder if this is inspired by the traditions associated with Sukkot. We hear in our gospel text today, early at the beginning of the service, that the crowd, which was probably largely made up of some of the hundreds of thousands of Jews who would make pilgrimage to Jerusalem every year at this time for Passover, these Jews are waving and laying down palm branches as Jesus processes into the holy city. So even though it's the time of Passover, it seems like these traveling pilgrims can't help but be reminded of a holiday that commemorates their ancestors' pilgrimage into a new reality in which God has replaced Pharaoh as their king. Both Passover and Sukkot draw inspiration from Psalm 118, which was recited after every Passover meal, and which Pastor Amos recited earlier in the service. Verse 27 says, With branches in hand, join in the festal procession up to the horns of the altar. And as the people on this day put these words into action, they're also crying out the words that come right before this. The stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Save us, we beseech you, O Lord. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. When the people in Jerusalem sing these psalms and recite these prophecies as Jesus enters the city, they are very explicitly hailing Jesus as the Messiah, the anointed one, who will come from God to make all things right. In fact, Matthew reports them saying, Hosanna to the son of David, a very explicit messianic reference. And Mark has them saying, blessed is the kingdom of our ancestor David that is coming. So clearly from their words and their actions, the people are recognizing that now more than ever is the time to say, Hosanna, save us. Now more than ever is the time of the Lord's salvation. Now more than ever is the arrival of the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Now is the time of the Messiah. 
And we know this guy is the Messiah because the path that he takes down from the Mount of Olives leads to the Temple Mount, the center of the people's life, the most holy place. We know this guy is the priest king that was prophesied because the prophet spoke of the oil made from the olives on the Mount of Oil Olives being used for the anointing of kings and priests. We know this guy is the Messiah because Zechariah himself stood on this very Mount of Olives and prophesied that the very place that his feet stood would be the place of the first and second comings of the Messiah. We know Jesus is the one because we see all the signs that Zechariah mentioned. The Lord has, in fact, returned to Jerusalem. The elders are enjoying the festivities. Boys and girls are running around and playing in the streets. People are entrusting themselves to Jesus and him to them. People from many cities and far-flung nations, even the Gentiles, are hearing and coming. And the king has come triumphant and victorious, yet humble, riding on a donkey, a baby donkey. This realization that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is king, that Jesus is God, could not be any more apparent than in this moment. And when a royal arrives, they must be installed with a festival, with singing and shouting and a procession right to the center of the people's collective life. But when the people acclaim Jesus as Messiah, they're not only recognizing him as king. They're also recognizing him as God's remedy for the sickness within the very being of humanity. They're recognizing him as God's solution to the bug within the very program, the very system of humanity. They are recognizing him as God who becomes what we are, that we might become what God is. God who becomes what we are, that we might become what God is, in the great words of St. Athanasius. They are recognizing that in his installation is our divinization. In his what is our what what? In his installation is our divinization. This is the part of the Nickelodeon show where it says, record scratch, you're probably wondering how we got here. Let me back it up. It all started back in the beginning when God, the Trinity, is chilling in God's eternally ineffable crib, enjoying God's self as they always have. Can you picture it? Of course you can't. It's unfathomable. (laughs) But at a certain moment, and when I say moment, remember that this is before the invention of time and space, God decided to create more beings who could share in God's life, who could enjoy the love, the fellowship, the interdependence, the joy, the power, the peace, all the incredible stuff that God is and God knows within God's self, and the stuff which cannot help but overflow out of God. My cup overfloweth. I might as well create some other vessels to catch this drip. Am I right? So the big mug creates little mugs and creates a world and a life in which they have the opportunity to overflow and become as much like God as any non-God being can be. God creates humans and puts them in an environment where they have access to that which makes them like God. They have access to the fruit of the tree of life. They have access to meaningful work. They have access to a beautiful home. They have access to relationships, including a relationship with God. And they have access to, last but not least, freedom. 
Just as the persons of the Trinity love each other freely, God gives humans the option to choose God freely and to choose freely the gifts that make us like God or to reject God in the life that makes us like God. Now, I don't want to blow your mind, but we end up choosing the latter, unfortunately. And we very much get what we choose. We choose this illusion of life that doesn't need to be gotten from the source of life. We choose the falsehood of wholeness without interdependence. We choose the distortion of power without the vulnerability that orders and channels it towards flourishing. And we build our lives and our communities and our cultures on this falsehood. We build it on entropy. We build it on decay and deprivation and death. And the rest of our history of humankind invariably demonstrates that we cannot right this wrong on our own. We cannot or at least will not reliably choose vulnerability alongside the power that we've been given. We will not choose life. We will not choose to receive the things that make us like God. We will not choose to enter into the life of God. So what's the solution? The only solution is for God to become a person and to choose the things that humans are supposed to choose but will not choose. The only solution is for God to accomplish what we will not, to become what we will not. God, the human being, approaches every irreducible facet of human experience in order to navigate them in ways that reflect how humans are intended to live. At every point of human experience where we are subject to death, God, the human being, enters into it and chooses life. Having all power, God, the human being, chooses to marry that power with vulnerability. Having all power, Jesus lives with no possessions. Having all power, Jesus entrusts the success and viability of his mission to flawed people. Having all power, Jesus lives in such a way that shows that there is no true power without vulnerability. There is no world where everyone has what they need without everyone choosing to rely on other people and work with other people and trust in other people. So God becomes what we are, experiencing this excess vulnerability that so much of us face and experiencing the power deficit that so many of us face, but always acting in such a way that points to how this power and vulnerability function together. After our choice to reject our opportunity to participate in God, God decides to participate in us. God takes the nature and experience of human beings into God's self, including the experience of death. And sorry, not to step on next week, but overcomes death that we might then participate in his human participation in God such that we as humans finally succeed in participating in God as we were created to. Let me hit that one more time. God takes our humanity into God's self, including death, overcoming death, that we might then participate in his human participation in God so that we as humans can participate in him participating in God as we were created to do. <laughs> so God dies, but death can't hold God. So God rises and God lives and God ascends into heaven to be the human king who is installed on the throne of God. The human who has been fully integrated into the life of God. The human who has fulfilled that for which humanity was created. The being who was divine and then became human and then made that humanity divine so that we could be divinized too. His installation 
our divinization. The Eastern tradition calls this theosis. Some people call it ontological healing. Insofar as Palm Sunday reveals that the installation of Jesus is our divinization, let's celebrate the picture that this event paints of atonement and of the kingdom, coming of the kingdom of God. We rise again on Easter so that we can in turn arrive to the final and eternal Palm Sunday. Our lives are restored on Easter that we might join in that great Palm Sunday which extends across time and space and generation and cultures where with all the saints we herald the arrival of the King. On that great Palm Sunday we are clothed in the new robes of resurrection so that we can lay them down on Jesus' path as he rides in to take his place as the Prince of Peace. On that great Palm Sunday, we are given the new tree that John saw in Revelation, the tree whose leaves are for the healing of the nations, that we might wave its palm fronds in jubilation. On that great Palm Sunday, creation is renewed so that the stones cry out and join us in shouting out glory to God. John saw all these stones making up the streets and the walls and the gates and the inscriptions, the names, the foundations of the new city, the jasper, the sapphire, the emerald, the onyx, turquoise, amethyst, all 12 of the precious stones that make the same cry as the 12 apostles and the 12 tribal heads. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. On that great Palm Sunday, Jesus enters into the eternal Jerusalem, where God's dwelling place is now with God's people, as Zechariah prophesied, and where there will be no more mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. On that great Palm Sunday, the procession of palm branches leads into the new temple, which is Jesus himself. But Five days after this triumphal entry, Jesus stands before the Sanhedrin, the council of elders, and they ask him, are you then the son of God? He says, you say that I am. When Pilate asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? He answers, you say so. Jesus is saying, you're going to find what you're looking for. You've made up your mind as to what you're after. And you're going to find it in me no matter what I say. You've made it clear that you're looking for a liar. You're looking for a blasphemer. You're looking for confirmation of your worldview. You're looking for affirmation of a world where the power hoarders win. So regardless of what I do or don't do, you're going to make me the one you're looking for. But the crowd has also made it clear what they're looking for. They're looking for a savior. They're looking for someone to rescue them, and they're going to find what they're looking for too. And if they don't proclaim what they're looking for, creation itself, the stones themselves, will tell us what they're looking for, and they will find it. So what are you looking for? What kind of savior? What kind of redemption? What kind of deliverance? What kind of world are you looking for? If we're looking for a prince of peace, if we're looking for someone riding on a donkey, if we're looking for a power made perfect by vulnerability, we have a jump on the world to come. We have a jump on this final eternal Palm Sunday, and we will find what we're looking for. Even if five days later that dream that we've been looking for dies right before our eyes, even if this weed of an old world chokes out the new world just as it starts to sprout up, 
No matter what happens, we nevertheless have already tasted it. We have seen it. We have laid our cloaks down on its path. We have proclaimed it. We have installed it. We know that the kingdom has come. We know it even if the impossible will have to happen to make it apparent, to make it visible to us. If the stones have to cry out, it will happen. If someone has to raise himself from the dead, it will happen. If someone has to grab one of those eschatological glorified bodies a few thousand years before they drop to the general public and show it off to the homies for 40 days, it will happen. If someone has to ascend to heaven in the middle of a conversation, it will happen. If people have to preach the good news about Jesus in languages that they don't even know, it will happen. If an impulsive fisherman who abandoned Jesus hours after he claimed to be his ride or die has to be transformed into the rock on which God builds God's church, it will happen. Whatever has to happen to make the kingdom come will happen. If slavery has to end, if racism has to end, if capitalism has to end, it will happen. Whether or not it will happen is not the question. The question is, is that what we're looking for? Jesus told us we're going to find what we're looking for. Thanks be to God.